Welcome to Happy Path Programming. I'm Bruce Eckle. I'm James Ward. All right. Well, welcome. Today we have with us Adam Frazier, who is up in Crested Butte. So we get to do another live in-person podcast. Uh, and so Adam, uh, you can tell me your actual title, but I, of course, know you from Zio, Scala Zio, which Bruce and uh, Bill and I are writing a book about. Bill Frazier, also Frazier. Do you guys spell your last names the same? Spell them differently. Okay. So maybe long lost relatives. <laughs> yeah. Nice. <laughs> Is a Frazier, you know, it's like there was a Smith who do this. What's a Frazier? Yeah, I the... think it came from Scotland at some point, uh, but I don't know much more about the, the so origin. You're there. probably involved with making beer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that sounds right. Our, our, um, our Scottish listeners will complain about my typecasting. Yeah. <laughs> or so, not. They might go, yep, that's <laughs> us. So Adam, I know him from his work in Zio and primarily around all of the things you've been doing with the Zio 2 runtime and making it just super awesome. I'm sure we can get into that. But I don't know. Tell us what you, what you do. <laughs> Everything Zio. Kind of. <laughs> yeah, that that's not not a bad description. Um, yeah, so I I started Zyverge with uh, with John. Your so it was just Sandra. the two of you. Well, uh, John, Sandra, and Itamar. Um, okay. So yeah, the four of us. Okay, and you did you have a customer? Did you have like um, a customer at that time? Is that how you were starting it, or was it just uh, supporting the open source project? It, it was. We we saw the opportunity. Um, mm -hmm. At that point, we hadn't even done the 1.0 release yet. And mm. we were already seeing companies that were using it mm. in production. Mm. So it, it seemed like we were really onto something there and we wanted to do something to really build on that and take that to the next level. Okay. And how long ago was that that Zyverge started? Uh, so about uh, almost two years ago. Two years so ago. we we did the first announcement at Functional Scala in London in 2019. Nice. Yeah. I didn't realize it was that, that recent. Two years. Yeah. yeah. Time, yeah. time has mean, maybe moved differently with the pandemic and everything. That and it it seems like there's we keep track of time by by markers like like milestones and it seems like there's been so many like markers in the world of Zio. Like, it's just like, oh my gosh, another amazing library or another amazing release or another amazing talk or, you know, whatever it is. Like, there's been so many markers that it seems like, like two years of calendar time is like 10 years of, of mm -hmm. events. It's two years <laughs> of sprinting. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So, um, I don't know. Yeah. Tell us about, about your history with Zia. Like, how did you get into it? And yeah. So. I, I started out, I had been doing my own Scala stuff, just basically uh, on my laptop for, for a while. I was doing uh, finance and investing at the time and kind of trying to marry the fundamental with the algorithmic. And so um, developed a bunch of tools for myself to do that. Huh. And I, I had my own like mini effect system and <laughs> things like that. Wow. But uh, it was... Probably not the most sustainable thing because time you spend working on that is not time you spend actually looking at the things you're investing in. And there's a balance there. So at a certain point, I decided, hey, if I want to do something with this, I got I to gotta get it, not just be doing it myself, but I got to start working with a broader group of people. And so I think I did my first contribution to Zio probably like July 2019, something like that. Okay. And I, I think I, I did one of the, I think the symposiums where I was talking about open source and I actually went back to that PR. And I mean, it's a very, it's a very basic PR. It's, it's one of those ones where someone had like scoped out, like, well, here's exactly what needs to be done. Here's basically the code you hopefully copy and paste in and this yeah. should. It's kind of like, work you here. remember the uh, draw by numbers? <laughs> it's kind of like, oh yeah, from this number to that number. Yeah. Yeah. So it was exactly. an easy, well, easy it, one, but... It seemed like it would be easy, okay. but I, I, I did it, and there were complications because it involved parallelism and concurrency and all this fun stuff. And very quickly, like I got I got comments from John, I got comments from Edamar, and we had a lot of back and forth, and we got it in, but I could see that there was, there was a real focus on correctness of it wasn't just like, is this okay, but... Is this the best way it can possibly be? Huh. And I think that's 
my own approach. So I, I think finding other people that so have a similar culturally, approach. like your values aligned with, with John and with Edmar. And, yeah. It, and it was also fast. I think that's one of the things I noticed is when, when there's a problem or when we say we want to do something, thing, things get moving. It's not like there's something that's just sitting there for four weeks and people are like, Oh, you know, do I think this, do I think that? Or like, okay, we got to make some decision here. It's the wrong decision. We got to move forward. Of course you were working with a fairly small group at that time. Because one of the things that we have been pondering is like, well, um, what is it? When you all agree? Consensus. Consensus. Okay. Because yeah. I've gone back and forth with consensus. And it's like, oh, actually, consensus is good if you have just a few people, but it doesn't scale. And so that's when people start running into issues is when you start getting more and more people involved. And then consensus is hard. Yeah, and then you just go to uh, the benevolent dictator because right. consensus doesn't work just anymore. Like so, yeah, just like that. Yeah, unless you're the Apache Foundation, mm-hmm. <laughs> and you stick with try to stick with consensus, but then there's a lot of fireworks. See what happens. Yeah, yeah. So uh, you'd probably been doing Scala for a long time then before. Since about 2014. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And do you have a background in like Haskell or or? Scala was pretty yeah, much your first I mean, I, I did a, a tiny amount of Java first, and then I moved to Java, to Scala. And so you, if you looked at my old code, you could definitely see, like, it started as a Java with semicolons, and it went from there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I remember, that's how I started, too, was from Java to Scala. And I wrote my Scala Java without semicolons. And, and, and now I'm, like, you know, full-on <laughs> Zio, like, <laughs> effects, fun- pure functions, like, that whole world. What yeah. about math? Do you have a background in math? Uh, I, I'd studied uh, chemistry and philosophy as an undergraduate, so I got some of it, but I'm definitely not a not a mathematician or a yeah yeah you know, computer scientist. Yeah, huh. so cool to like go from from not the Haskell world <laughs> into Zio because it seems like you know obviously John and um, I don't know about about Edmar others, but like it seems like like there was kind of this pull from that. Uh, direction, but I think it's so important to have a different perspective. That, and I think it's probably what part of what's made Zio great is that it's it's not Haskell. And I I could never really get into cats. You know, it's like it was too uh, cats and and even Scholar's Ed were just too too far from my realm of what I was familiar with. And Zio was the first time where I'm like, oh, this is something that I can do. I remember at one oh no, I think it's when we had like a Scala summit or something. We all tried to watch one of the Zio, uh, no, not Zio, uh, Scala Z presentations. <laughs> and I wonder now if I went back and watched it, if any of it would make, because none of it made sense to me. <laughs> yeah. It was just totally, a. Yeah. You, you know, what, I guess it was an introductory or something. Yeah. But um, I wonder if I would grasp more of it now or if it would still be hard to I would grasp more of it now. But yeah, I mean, it was the same way. It was coming from a, Oh, oh, Java background, all these ideas of like applicatives and functors, like all of it just was like, I don't even understand. Mm, is this programming <laughs> or is it something yeah. else? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that was, that was where it started. And then, and then you've done a whole lot since then in terms of like the runtime and the API, like surface layer, like what developers use. And I don't know, tell us more about it. Well, I, I started out really working on, on Zio test. Um, that was the uh, thing cool. I got most involved with at the nice. beginning. And I, I think Zio it was test. a good time for me because that project was really just starting out. And so at the beginning, I, 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 I always tried to take just about every pull request there, or take every issue that there was for Zio test. If it would come up, I would take it. I would yeah. try to do it the next day or so, and I would take another one. And I, I always, when I'm giving people advice about open source, I, I always suggest that they try to find something that they can take ownership of. Maybe mm. it's a whole library or maybe it's just like this data structure, but take ownership of that thing of, you know, obviously you're not literally owning it, but you're going to be the responsible person there. And if there's an issue there, you're going to do your best to come up with a solution or bring people together to get to a solution. Mm-hmm. And I think that way you build expertise and you build value that you're bringing where people are then coming to you and being like, Hey, I want this extra thing. How can mm-hmm. I do it? And then you give yourself a base to branch out from. Whereas I think some people just do a little bit here and there, which 
if you want to, that that's fine. But I think you can maybe have, find it more rewarding for yourself as well as have more impact if you find something that you, you can, can immerse really... yourself. Yeah, into. exactly. Yeah. Oh, and something that people like know you for and will go to you for, like like this, that you like you said, you own when you own a piece, then um, yeah, it's different. So. Yeah, and then you can branch out from there over time. Had you done much open source before this? No, I had done almost nothing. Huh. Hmm. Yeah, I think huh. I did one thing to Scalacheck way back, and huh. that was about it. Wow. Yeah. I mean, wild to go from like no real open source contributions to contributing to like one of the most, in a way, is like hardcore like Scala <laughs> libraries you could possibly find, and contributing like like difficult pieces like anything around concurrency i'm sure is not easy yeah well i think that's one of the things that is a real testament to folks like john is at the beginning he spent a lot of time like you would do a pull request and there would be very detailed feedback wow. and you you incorporate that and you you learn from that you really get a lot out of that yeah yeah and grow in your own um understanding and and ability to to then go further so yeah yeah we uh had weem on oh, yeah. a couple episodes ago and she she said very similar things about john's mentoring and how how it had helped her but also maybe that's part of what's made zeo great is that john has mentored people well and helped them become significant contributors to the project Um, so, so yeah. So what are some of the Zio parts of Zio that you've worked on since Scala test? I mean, uh, test? No, no, it's, it's okay. We, we, we can just replace one with the other. So, um, so I, uh, I did the Z hub concurrent data structure. Okay. Uh, and then I did the, uh, scheduler for Zio 2.0, the fiber yeah, cool. scheduler. Uh, and that was, the, I think your most recent presentation I watched was about the Zio 2 scheduler. And I'm just like, amazing like <laughs> some really hard problems that that are underneath all that there, there's some interesting stuff there and there's there's actually more coming yeah awesome <laughs> uh so so yeah a couple of those big things and then i find it's always a balance of there's the, the those big things but then there are also just the little things of a lot of what i think about around open source is just continuous improvement and you have a lot of things of just make type inference a little bit better on this method, make this thing a little more efficient, add something that's going to make it a little easier to do this. And if you just keep going in the right direction consistently, that really adds up over time. Yeah. We've been, we've had some impressive surprises when playing with ZO2 and, and some of the error messages and, and inference that it's done. And it's like, how can it know that? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There was just not used to it in other languages. Well, just like the um, the error message we got on the layers that mm -hmm. we were looking at, uh, and how it's like, whoa! How did how did they produce such a precise, such a precise and helpful error message? Mm -hmm. Kit did a really good job with that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. We were looking into like how that was actually implemented with like implicit not found or some some amazingness. Yeah. But but yeah, to put effort into. The developer experience. I think that's something that Zio has done a really good yeah. job of is is investing in the developer experience side of things that that most most a lot of people don't put. That like, guy ah, works. Yeah. Not well, like, it's hard enough oh, to get it to work to use versus <laughs> oh, what's the experience that somebody's going to have? Can they just cargo cult their way into using this thing and get a good result? Which I think is a big you know, benefit if I can just, I go, oh, I wonder if this will work. And it'll go, no, that won't work because these reasons do this. Wow. That's yeah. really helpful. Yeah. The developer experience is, is mm -hmm. something I've been very, very pleased with using Zio. Mm. And even we're mostly using it now with Scala 3. And I have realized how IntelliJ, um, I, I just can't even write code anymore without IntelliJ. <laughs> mm -hmm. That's kind of sad because I used to be able to write a lot of code in VI. And now <laughs> it's like I'm so dependent on IntelliJ. Um, but IntelliJ in Scala 3 has not been super awesome. Uh, you've been on the bleeding edge. Yeah. Oh, and so for everything, it's yeah. been interesting to kind of struggle through 
not having a very functional IDE, but even with that like huge hit to the developer experience, it's it's been such a joy to use Zio. Like like things we were talking with Bill about the um, the the in Zio two the naming of the methods, mm. just like when I go to try to find something, you can guess. You can guess, like, yeah. Guessability. Yeah, the guessability. Is, <laughs> oh, yeah, which is, is like you realize, oh, we're doing this all the time, but n they're not thinking about that normally. So yeah. if somebody actually thinks about, can we make this more guessable? Really helpful. Yeah. Um, and then, the so there's the guessability part that was, that was really imp important, but then also consistency and naming. Yeah, so mm -hmm. um, they're, like... In Z01, it's what put Sterling and it's the Haskells and Readline. Oh, is that from Haskell? That's exactly where it's from. Oh, it's interesting to understand yeah, the, yeah. the history of that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but now it's like no, we we don't need that, and it's more it's more useful to have names that that make sense. Are actually English and words? Are English words, and are something that I would think of, or you know, most developers would think of, like. What is it now? Read, read line and read line and print line. And print line, yeah. It's like that just makes sense. Yeah, I really appreciate the API. I'm personally a fan of just read and print myself, but is it that's what Python does? Is just like read and print. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there, there, there is a print, but it doesn't. That one doesn't insert the new line. But may, maybe that'll be for Z03. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay, so I want to hear a little more about the your work in the Zio scheduler. And I don't know, just for those well, who probably haven't. And first, tell oh, us yeah, what, what the is scheduler. scheduler. What was what problem does it solve? Yeah, absolutely. So in a system like Zio, you have all these different fibers, and each fiber is you can think of as kind of a user land thread that has a set of tasks that it's supposed to execute. And you could have a million fibers in a large Zio application. And for efficiency, you probably only want a number of physical threads equal to the actual number of cores on your system. So maybe that's have... the ideal for cache. Um, what's the word? Uh, Concurrency? No, Concurrency. like cache locality cache and avoiding locality. the cost yeah. of context yeah. switching. Yeah. yeah. So you have maybe eight of these threads. And so you need to schedule these fibers onto these fibers different into... threads. And these fibers may also be doing things where they may suspend at some point. They may go into an asynchronous state where they do some work and now they're done for a while until someone has a result for them and they need to go and they need to wait and then eventually need to get run. And so uh, in Zio 1.0, we basically just used um, an, an executor that is one of the standard you know, Java concurrent fixed thread pools. And what that essentially does is it just has one work queue that all of these threads pull off of. So you can think of every time you offer new work, you just add it to the end of this giant queue, and you have these threads that are just always trying to pick things off of this queue. Mm -hmm. And that works okay. It worked okay for the life of Z01, but there are a couple of issues with it. Of One, you've got a lot of contention for taking from the head of that queue because you've got these eight or however many different threads that are potentially trying to get that value. And the other problem you have is you have a loss of that cache locality yeah. where you may have part of your computation that you're doing on one of these threads, but then you enter one of these asynchronous states, you submit it to the back of that queue. Well, when it comes to the front of the queue, it's completely random which thread is going yeah. to take that. And so you may have a different thread that no longer has that in its cache. And so, uh, and what sort of impact? I mean, it obviously it's a big enough impact that you spent all this time fixing the problem. Yeah, so it, it's one of those, I, I think the benchmarks are, are hard because to measure mm, it, course. you do micro benchmarks and there you can you can do it very quantitatively on some of these, it's, it's twice as fast when you do it with this. Mm. Now the micro benchmark is a micro benchmark when you go and you call some database and you, or you do something over the network, like that adds up really quickly. So for your particular application, you may see that more or less, but one of the things we really wanna do is we wanna minimize the overhead that an effect system like Zio brings so that Zio is to the maximum extent possible, never a reason to 
not do it's never a reason to not do something the efficiency of is never a reason the efficiency mm -hmm. is never a reason exactly mm -hmm. you should sure, never have to take the escape hatch down to some lower level right. primitive in order to work around ideally you don't think about it right. exactly you just go i will write my code the way i want to write it and i know it will run efficiently exactly uh head of line blocking it wasn't that one of the other issues with the like where um you can get these tasks stacked up behind like one that's that's taking a long time and consuming all the cpu and so it's it gets kind of blocked and can't get scheduled when it could just move to a different a different thread or something and run and that would be faster wasn't that one of the things you talked about so well so that that's more an issue you got to watch out for when you try to improve on this yeah. so like you've got this naive where you have the queue and there you're okay there because everything's in, just in the queue. So someone's going to take things as long as there's work to take. So okay. everyone stays busy. That's the advantage of that yeah. architecture. Yeah. Um, but you have this loss of locality and you have this competition. Yeah. So you could, you kind of think of that as like one extreme of, okay, you have this one shared state of this queue. The other extreme is what you could think of as a completely sharded system. So you could say, I'm going to have eight different queues. I'm going to have one for each of these threads. And each of these threads is just going to be doing work from its own queue. And when it has new continuations, it's going to put them back on its own queue. And so there you've got almost the opposite set of trade-offs of there's no contention on these queues. There's 100% cache locality. But you create the issue that you raise that depending one on work run out distribution, of work right, one, one is just sitting there while another one is one backed up. One queue is empty and one is backed up. Yeah. Right. So that model, it's actually the model you see in some uh, uh, some either languages or, or, or some paradigms, um, like CSTAR does that. Uh, but what that does is it pushes more of the uh, work onto the user to say, how are they going to manage that mm -hmm. concurrency of say, like, okay, I've got 10,000 tasks. I think these are all roughly the same amount of work, so split them out evenly. Or, well, I think these are more, these are going to take longer, so give these more weight versus the other ones. So if something is in a queue, is it always ready to run or can it be in the queue and in a suspended state? So if it's a suspended state, it hasn't gone back into the queue. Everything okay. in the queue is ready to is ready to be run. Okay, because that's different. I mean, m most of my current thinking right now is from Python and you just, you have a bunch of tasks and some of them are ready to run and some of them aren't. And the scheduler just kind of randomly chooses them. And if it's not ready to run, it goes and finds another one. Got it. Got it. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, so that model, it can be very efficient, but it pushes this complexity onto the users, which is not the typical experience that yeah. you want as, as a Zio user. Yeah. And so... It's not something I want to think about. No. no. Exactly. So, so the, the work of this is to kind of try to get the best of both worlds. And uh, we do that through work stealing. Uh, so you have those different queues, but each of the threads has the queue that it owns, but it also has the ability to go and try to steal so tasks. So if it runs out of ones, tasks, it'll can get go them from the other from one. Somebody else. Okay. Yeah, exactly. In which case, they wouldn't have the cache locality, but, but you're, they, it's you're better not than sitting, sitting there doing nothing. Exactly. Right. Okay. Yeah. Well. So it's one of those things, it, it makes a ton of sense that's, easier said than done in a concurrent environment because you need to make sure that when you take that thing that it never gets done twice that you never get into a situation where you think there's not work and then work gets submitted and mm. all of your threads have gone sleep so there's there's definitely more complexity there um but there's actually there was some really good work that was done in uh in rust um in uh, their their tokyo system there okay um so so that was definitely some inspiration for what we did uh, but, uh, yeah, it, it, I think huh. it's, it's worked, uh, well so far and we've got some interesting stuff in the works to, uh, to build on that further. Nice. Yeah. So I'm presuming that if, um, you're working with the Zio scheduler and concurrency system, you're assuming that everything is pure functions so that, you know, in other words, so if I, if I'm in a task and I need some information from another task, I can just read it and I don't have to worry about it changing or me modifying it. Is this like, like uh, in the ballpark? It, the, the mutability is exposed through like a, a ref or, okay. um, other higher level constructs. If there is mutability, uh, it, 
So it's managed mutability. So so the so, so it's you, an effect based yeah. mutability. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, yeah. At, the, at the level of the scheduler, the, these are just essentially runnables that it's right. running. So it doesn't care about. It, it. I'm just thinking. It, of but it, yeah, it, it, ideally, it, it's suspended somewhere, whether mm-hmm. it's a pure function or whether it's a effect that suspends some arbitrary block of code. Yeah. Mm-hmm. One of the things that has bothered me with with like I don't know I did this in Play Framework and other systems where I would have to tell the system, this thing is blocking. And so use this other thread pool Mm -hmm. for this blocking operation. And I'm like, why, why am I the developer telling you that something is blocking and needs to use a different blocking thread pool? Um, What's in Zio? Like, do you, do you have to, does the developer ever have to designate like this thing needs a blocking thread pool because otherwise it's going to block all the, all the threads or. So if, if you've got something that's literally blocking the thread, then yeah, you want to designate that as blocking with there's just a Zio blocking operator and you just do it around it and you designate that we're working on ways to improve that. Um, but when you, in this environment where you have a limited number of threads, you need to be careful that one of them doesn't just, get stuck yeah uh and so you you have to be careful about how you manage that and it's it's challenging i think both from a sometimes from a user as well as from a library author perspective of just identifying what things are blocking because you know if you can look at a library and you can sometimes not know yeah it's like like, yeah exactly like how do i know if this thing is blocking because really like what we mean in that sense by blocking is it takes a long time (laughs) you know like because like if something takes 10 milliseconds to, to run, we probably wouldn't put that into a blocking context. It's like short enough well, you execution. Might, you might not. It depends. Yeah. That's the problem with concurrency <laughs> is that it all depends. And so it, you, you use different strategies for different situations. So 10 milliseconds could be a long time in, yeah. in your problem. Yeah, or it, it might not. Well, yeah. it, and it also really matters. Is it just taking a long time because it's doing compute work then? Or is it taking a long time because it's literally in a thread blocking state? Because if it's doing compute, then, okay, maybe from a fairness perspective, you'd like to give someone else a chance to get in, but that work presumably has to be done at some point. You're doing work that needs to be done versus if you're literally just blocking, then there's other work that could be done by that thread that is not being done because it's in that blocking state. Yeah. What are the, other than calling like thread.sleep, what are the other blocking things that can block a thread unnecessarily? I guess a blocking I.O. would be another one. But. Right. It, it, it's typically some variant of that. But like if you if you have a countdown latch and you right. wait for the countdown latch. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Anything where there's some asynchronous result and you're like waiting. For I've just it right been now, in the reactive world for so Zio. long. Like blocking, the only place where blocking makes any sense to me is CPU like heavy computations. Like, I don't ever want to see blocking when it's not needed, you know, like. Right. I mean, as, as a user, you really shouldn't have to deal with it at all. And hopefully we get to a point where there are more and more Zio libraries that if you want to do this type of IO, you just use this library and they've thought about that and they've looked at all these operators in detail and said, mm-hmm. is this something we need to shift or not? Mm-hmm. But probably there are always going to be things you want to do that don't fit into a particular library. And then we want to have better functionality for that. So that's something we're working on. Yeah. I'll have to look at the code. Remember I was showing you last week the code that I wrote with the Zio streams? Mm-hmm. And part of the code was using uh, the Levenstein distance algorithm, which oh, nice. computes like the dis- distance between two different strings. Yeah. And it's it's pretty CPU and uh, heavy, but I don't think I put it into a Zio blocking. But it should be like because it's uh, it, and uh, I, I wonder if I didn't, if I added it, if I put it in Zio blocking, if that would make any difference from that particular. Well, if if it's just compute intensive, then it's really only a matter of fairness. It's not a matter of correctness. Of yeah. you, you need to be computing that distance, so yeah. yep. you're doing that work. There's no one who's sitting idle there, right? Yeah, so by it, fairness, you mean, oh, there's other tasks that should be getting that, that some time. That should potentially getting some time, okay. but that may or may not be important yeah. to your application. Right. If if you've got eight of the, if you have eight cores and you've got eight of those going on yeah. and you're not seeing that you got a signal from someone that says, well, I don't actually need this distance calculated anymore, that's a problem. If your whole application is just calculating these distances and yeah. you then you know, you've, you you've got to do what you've got to do. Yeah. <laughs> that yeah. compute has to happen. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
this is a fun little example that took a, a file with a bunch of tweets in it and then it um, streamed through the file. So it streamed the file and then used the ZeoJSON um, streaming support and parsed it because it was a JSON file and then and then streamed it through it did like a like a moving window through the file to look for duplicate tweets. Oh nice using using Levenstein distance and it was it was I just loved it because it was like so concise. You know, it was like seven lines of code to like mm. do this thing. And but the cool part that I was showing Bruce and Bill was when I run it, all 16 of my CPUs are fully fully gone. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's a good sign. Yeah, it's a good sign. Right. Mm. So that was a fun one. But um, okay, so the scheduler stuff is cool. It's I'm I'm super excited about where all that goes, and it's it really bothers me when we waste resources. <laughs> like like we in typical computing, we waste a lot of our resources, and those could be used for mining practices. Bitcoin. <laughs> yes, <laughs> that that's what we really need. We'll just we'll discover any unused threads you have, and we'll just get those going to work Bitcoin. until you have you more could work. Create there. a zero library that would do that. Right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, or with supply chain attacks, somebody will do it for you. Yeah, right, right. There you go. <laughs> um, yeah, so the scheduler stuff is is awesome. Yeah, I'm really excited about what's what's happening there. Uh, I had a question about um, oh, so Java is the JVM's working on that new um, fiber model thing. project Loom. Loom, yeah. that's right. Yeah. I always forget the name of it. For it's yeah. also very poetic, right? Yeah. The fibers are on the loom. Yeah. <laughs> it is. Yeah, that'll be a good way to remember it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, how does that impact any of this stuff? So I think it potentially just helps us make Zio faster, uh, which is great. I think one of the nice things about Zio is I think it's going to give you a more consistent uh, way that you can develop as we go through this transition. Because essentially what Loom is doing is it's reversing what is you're supposed to do. Of in the old world, in today's world, don't do blocking, right? Never do thread.sleep, never wait for these things. These are all terrible things to do. Yeah. Have everything be callback and async based. And Loom is gonna kind of turn that around and those things where you're just blocking for the result are gonna be the fastest things. And so there's gonna be, if you're kind of writing that callback-based code yourself, there's going to be a lot of rewriting to be done because you're going to have to, you know, want to change all that back to a much more traditional style of code. Yeah. And so I think one of the value propositions Zio can bring there is uh, give more consistency to um, the rest of people who are using Zio because essentially when that comes along, we're going to go in and we're going to, in the Zio runtime, change some of the things we do to take advantage of that and do that. But as a user of Zio, you're not going to have to do that. Right. Um, so, so I think that's like the first Zio's message there. That insulate you from having to think about how the fibers and scheduling and all that stuff happens. And how that's changing. Exactly. Yeah, and how that's changing. Yeah. yeah. So you've got a nice isolation layer there. Yeah. So I think that's the first thing. And then I think the second thing that you you may see, and, and I think this has contributed to this as well as some of the work that actually Mordowski is potentially doing, is can we eventually get away from the four comprehension? Hmm. Right. The, I mean, the four comprehension, it's, it, it's, it's the best way you can express a imperative type, do this, do that, then do this other thing in a functional effect system based style, but it's still not the greatest. And I think it's, it, we've got to acknowledge the barrier to adoption. There are people who are coming from Java or whatever, who are like, this is weird. Why can I not just do val x equals this and this equals yeah. this? So it, it it's not the greatest. What what are the problems with uh, for comprehension? Well, I I think the biggest one might just be that it's it's different than people are used to, right? Okay. If I'm a Java developer and I'm telling me like I got to do this it's thing, calling magical maps and flat yeah, maps a little bit that I've got to kind of explain that these uh -huh. are maps and flat maps and then. There are some things that are like not completely regular of like, if I'm not in a four comprehension, I want to assign something to a variable, I would do val x equals so-and-so. Mm. But within a four comprehension, I don't do the val, I just do the x. Mm. Why is that? And, and okay, fine, I'm, I'm saving some lines. But again, if I don't know it, like that's a little bit weird. Mm. Or there's, if I want to destructure something, if I want to destructure a tuple, 
if I just do val x, y equals one, two, mm -hmm. that works. But if I want to do that in a four comprehension and I've got the arrow there, that's not going to work mm -hmm. for me. I've got to do kind of the whole variable in one line. I've got to do an equal to in the next line. Mm -hmm. So okay. there are all these like little things and okay. I think overall uh, like parallelism is another one that I've encountered with the four comprehension is that because it is like imperative, you know, it's just, just sequential. Sequ it's sequential. And and so there's times where I want to do something that something in parallel and, and the four comprehension obviously doesn't make sense in that case. So right. you have to go to you have to reach for some other mechanism other than the four comprehension. So what might um replace that then? What what's the well, so you could imagine some future world where you just assign variables to the results of operations that are effects and some in the language essentially, along with maybe some of these tools like, I mean, I think Project Loom would really be necessary to enable this in a non-blocking way, but mm. it translates that into, you, know, you said val x equals zo async so-and-so. Well, what we we're gonna say what you really meant there is you meant run that ZO thing and once it has its result, assign it to X and then go on to the next line. Yeah. So basically do the logic you were doing in the four comprehension, but do it in a way where that syntax is more familiar to the user. Could that be done with macros? Um possibly, there was possibly. There, there was a Scala project that through macros was doing the um they were doing it on futures yeah i think there's the, one called monadless um monadless. i think there, yeah. there are a couple of things there yeah. so yeah, yeah i think there have been a couple of different strands that are potentially connecting that direction of of macros of some of the work that oderski's doing of project loom and we'll, we'll see if those eventually come together but yeah. i think at some point that could become important i think right now we're still we've got enough other accessibility yeah. issues to solve that that's not our limiting factor yet but sometime if we're successful enough that may become the limiting factor yeah yeah um and then maybe we'll have to use the new scala 3.1 exceptions stuff for the air for the yeah. air handling piece because that's always my concern with with as people talk about loom and being able to do all this async stuff without without monads or something like monads is that you lose the like air channel unless yeah. you unless you go to unless you go back to exceptions or something. Well, I I think the way you ultimately want to go is you, you don't lose the monad. You just have syntax that makes it easier to work with the monad. Yeah. So you're still using Zio. Yeah. You just got syntax that maybe lets you get away from the four comprehension for that. But I, I think the idea of losing the effect system at all, you, you get so much else from the effect system. You get errors, you get environment, managed you, get, resources. you get managed resources, you get much more control over that concurrency of, okay, it's great to like fork things and wait for them, but how about interrupting all of the other things once one thing fails? There's there's a lot more that goes into that. Yeah. Uh, it keeps popping in my head. So tell me about the fiber tracing stuff. Yeah, so that's that's pretty cool. Yeah, and it's actually something we're working very actively on this weekend for the hackathon. Mm, nice. Uh, so it, it's had a couple of of steps. So the first one has been trying to move the work of capturing the execution traces from runtime to compile time. So in Z01, there was this stack tracer that essentially every time when we were running a Zio interpreter, every time we execute an operation, we would capture a stack trace for it. And we would put those together into the stack trace that would go into, if you ever saw an error and you saw the giant line of all the different yeah. failures that occurred, that's where it comes from. And that was definitely a big improvement over the state before that, because before that you didn't really have a trace of what went wrong of the path to failure in asynchronous code, because mm -hmm. the stack trace itself didn't give you that information. Uh, but it has pretty significant overhead. Uh, that's another roughly 2x in microbenchmarks factor. And wow. it's one where you know, when we show benchmarks, we don't include that. But the reality is the vast majority of people who are using effect systems are using it with tracing because they want to be able to see yeah. what happened when something went wrong. Yeah. 
So what this does is it moves that from runtime to compile time. Hmm. So the, the downside is if you've used Z02, at least in the very latest versions, you've noticed, you may have noticed there's this implicit Z trace element that is on just about every ZO operator. Interesting. And you really, you don't have to do anything with it. It does make the signatures a little bit uglier and yeah. that's one downside there, but it essentially takes away that cost of doing the tracing. Nice. Because uh, those are just, at compile time, it's just this implicit is just synthesized. There's a macro that captures the information on what the scope is that you're in. And so that's just always available. Huh. And so it both reduces the cost of doing that as well as it's going to make them a lot cleaner. So one of the things you may have noticed is there were a lot of lines that's like ZO flat maps, ZO flat maps, yeah. ZO insuring, and yeah. that doesn't really help you. Right. So one of the advantages of this is that uh, for all the internal ZO operators, we take an existing implicit trace and we just pass that through. Yeah. For user operators, you don't. we generate a new trace. And so when you look at one of these traces, you're going to see your code. You're no longer going to see the internals of ZO. That's cool. Um, it's counterintuitive, though. Tracing at compile time doesn't, you know, it's like, but tracing is inherently a runtime activity, it seems like. Well, so capturing the information on the path we've taken can occur, or, or that a method gets called from can occur at compile time, but then which one is generated, right? Which one we actually render, because most of them we're, we're not going to do anything with this tracing information because it's just a successful effect. It's the mm. event of failure. We're going to take that information that was generated and we're going to use that. So you're treating tracing as another effect. Um, we're, we're being lazy about it. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, or we're, we're being lazy about actually using the traces. Yeah. Hmm. So, so that was the work that uh, occurred uh, up to a, a few days ago. And then the latest is uh, John actually did some really good work that got uh, merged a day or two ago that changes the way those traces are rendered. So they look almost identical to uh, the stack trace that you would get for nice. any Java program. That's awesome. And so that way, if you have any tools that are working with stack traces, that are parsing them, those are going to work with the traces that get generated by Zio. Cool. And it just it looks the way that you yeah. I mean, for better or worse, you've yeah. you've seen a million times yeah. the way a Java stack trace works, and yeah. now these are gonna look the same way. Well, and for those that aren't familiar, the amazing thing about this is that it crosses async boundaries, which uh, there's so much code that I'm writing now where it's just well that I've written for the last I don't know how many years, many years that's async. And so the stack traces just have no value. <laughs> and so these, because they are not stack traces, they're fiber traces. Mm. Now they have actual value across the async boundaries. Yeah. So just so I'm clear, there's still some runtime overhead for tracing, right? There, yeah. there, there is a, there's a small amount. But of it's, just it's just super small it's, it's versus, super small versus what okay, before. Okay. Yeah. yeah. All right. Yeah. Nice. Otherwise it would have been complete magic. Yes. Yes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's cool stuff. One thing I think a lot about is how we help Java Spring developers move forward into more modern stuff. And I'm obviously so convinced that Zio is so much better of a model than Spring for so many things. And I don't know. I feel like like the Spring community, the users of Spring are just, they so need Zio. How do we get them to, to how do we help, help them? I think there's another question, which is for what percentage is it actually possible? I think you need to take that into yeah. account. I, I think there's some percentage where it's not feasible. And so you should say, well, Let's look at the people who are and what their needs are, rather than trying to cover everybody. Yeah, for what percentage? I mean, I would love it if all of them made the switch. How do we make that happen? But it was—it's similar to what I was talking about before with the the study on generics 
and that the vast, you know, over 90% of people were just using list of string and map of string to string. They were just putting strings in there. And it's like all the generic mechanisms were just kind of pointless. No, right. So it's like, you're not going to convince that person to, you know, you go, don't think, go in this direction. You don't think I can? Well, I mean, this is what we're trying to do with the book, but, uh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of the point of the book. The kind of point of the book, but I think it's still going to be too, I'm starting to think of it as people who have at least seen a little bit of functional style of programming, even if it's just, you know, using map in Scala in Java 8 or, you know, just, you know, a little bit, oh, that functional thing. I want to know more about that. But I think they have to at least be there before they're interested in reading our book. Yeah. Well, I think the other thing is having solutions to particular mm. problems. Like I think yeah. Yeah. Caliban or something is, is interesting yeah. there of like, look, you want to do GraphQL? Like this is a great GraphQL library. This is going to let you write this small amount of code and you're going to have your client and server. And if yeah. that's the payoff, then you're like, all right, well, I guess I got to like figure out like what the deal with this like implicit value I need to define to like make this work. And maybe the first time you do it to your point earlier, you don't really understand what the implicit value is. You're just like, all right, I guess they told me I need to do this. So this yeah. is what I'm going to do, which every yeah. fear is what yeah. you do with, right? If you use Kafka, probably they tell you, oh, you need to configure it this way. And yeah. you don't know all those settings yeah. at the beginning, but just do what they tell you and it yeah. works and you're happy. So you start there and then you're like, okay, well now I guess I've got a Scala application, I guess. What am I going to do with this? And then you start learning things from there. So I think we almost have to like get past the effect system yeah. of like how long it's, in Scala have we spent talking about I would about love to systems? be able to convince Spring users that effect systems are a much better model and type uh, type system-based dependency injection is a much better model and air channels are a much better model. Like, like, I'll, like I would love to convince them of those things. And I think maybe to your point, Bruce, like there is a small percentage that will be convinced by those things, but probably what you're saying is true, Adam, that the majority will be convinced because they are trying to solve a particular problem and Zio makes it easier yeah, to solve. They get stuck in Java or something. And they go, oh, my God, this is like an impossible problem to solve. And then they go, oh, I could solve it in this. And it does everything and I don't have to kill myself. Yeah. And that's probably more. Yeah. That direct experience is more convincing than anything. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess that kind of matches with my journey through Mm -hmm. all this stuff, too, is. If you don't know, James will take something and he'll just jump in and try it out without knowing anything about it. That's, <laughs> that's his favorite way of doing things. Well, that's, that's good way it is a good way. It is a good way. I have such a hard time getting there, though. I'm like, <laughs> no, no, I have to know all this stuff before it makes sense. James goes, let's just try it and see what we can make. Yeah. And it's really it good to... Really good and maybe that's why I like, like statically type pure functional stuff is because... It just it reduces the churn on uh-huh. on bashing goes, through. No, James, yeah. that's not the way to do it. Do it this so way. The compiler just keeps telling me yeah, that I'm doing exactly. it wrong until I do it right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's, nice. it's a good fit. That's why I hate YAML because. <laughs> oh my god! I indented something. I had one extra space somewhere. It yeah. was failing, and <laughs> and I I don't find out. Like there's no feedback that tells me that I'm an idiot. But there are spaces now. I mean, we we have meaningful indentation in uh, Scala three. We've been doing uh, in the, for the book just yeah. all, oh, just pure all braceless, as pure, I, I, as, pure as possible. I, I think it's so the future. You've, you've, oh, yeah. you've just got to go there. Yeah, but I think we're getting tooling that when you format it tells you that, or when it's not indented, it gives you a compilation error. So that's right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think that'll be fine. Right, which is actually easier than Python, which just gives you a runtime error. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, mm-hmm. I hate runtime errors. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess that's that's a really good way to look at this whole spring thing. And the way that I'm thinking about it is, like, I wasn't convinced to move forward in my Scala journey because because of the technical arguments. And I've been trying to make the technical arguments for why effect systems are important and better to people, and it's not working. And so, like, like. It's if somebody to, believes the earth is flat, explaining to them that it's not doesn't, it just makes them dig in. Yeah. 
apologies to our flat earther listeners, but <laughs> we don't think there's and more our, than one and or two. Our, and you've just compared spring users to flat earthers. I so. didn't do that. <laughs> I, I didn't say that. Well, well I'll, I'll go that far and say okay. that. They're, they're basically, uh, if you're doing dynamic wiring of dependencies. But it's working time, for them. Is it though? Because it's not working for me. They think it's working for them. <laughs> they think it's working. I run into so many issues when I'm working on these dynamic applications. <laughs> just it's painful. Just like, come on, give me my ZO. <laughs> but also, are we giving them the solution at the right level, right? Mm. Like what you want to use is, people are interested in is they want the program to edit their music or to watch their movie. And we're kind of telling them, well, there's a better operating system. It's like, okay, I don't really care about your operating system. I just want to like edit my music file. Yeah. And that's what we've eventually got to get to. And I think that's where we're starting to go with, okay, we've got Zio, we've got a solid foundation. Now we're starting to build other things on top of that that are starting to get close to like the actual problems that people have. Yeah. Yep. The I think the argument that we're making in the book is that we're we're not trying to solve the problem of just producing software quickly, which has been the last few decades. How do we make software quicker? We're looking, we're saying, okay, we can do that now, but it's not reliable software. And so our focus is on reliability. Mm -hmm. And if somebody is just saying, well, you know, I did this thing in JavaScript and it worked and I'm able to work, they're not, they, they don't have any pain about it. <laughs> So I think, and I think the pain point is reliability. Remember we, our acronym for the book before we started calling it effect oriented programming was prep because it was combining. I'm going to correct. That was your acronym. You I were, still love it. Yes, we understand. So it's combining performance, reliability, um, express, no, is it expressive? Expressiveness. I don't and, know. Um, something else and productivity. productivity. So it was so that it's yes, we want to build more reliable software more easily, but we also want it to be performant, and that's where like Zio comes in with amazing schedulers mm -hmm. and that kind of stuff. But it's yeah, so that was it's oh, the other one I was thinking of, which I think we we're going to add in another R into prep. I keep saying, you we. keep saying, you we. we're going to have you keep saying, we. uh, refactorability. So um, this is something where I prep, prep, prepper, prepper, prepper. Oh, no, that sounds like, no, no, that's no, somebody that's who's already taken. Yeah. Um, Let's just not. It is amazing when you go into a code base and can do massive overhauls on it. And the compiler says, okay. And then the thing just works. Or compiler says no. Well, <laughs> compiler says no a lot. And then eventually you get it to say, yep. yeah. My yes. first experience with C++ when I started using it way back when was, oh my gosh, unlike C, if C++ compiles, it works. <laughs> and of course, that was a stretch, but it was way more than what C would do. Yeah. Yeah. So, and this is much closer. Way more. Yeah. 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 It does what I told it to do, and it does that correctly. It may not be what I wanted it to do, <laughs> actually, but Yeah. As you know, I've been trying to convince people that builder the builder pattern is horrible. Okay. And the main reason for this is that you only find out at runtime that you that there's some some necessary thing that you've missed or something. And it's amazing how hard it is to convince people that it's a good thing that your compiler should be able to validate as much of the program as possible. Even in the Java community. It's like I'm like, why is it so hard? Why 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 isn't everybody like fully on board with yes let's put as much in the compiler verification as we possibly can uh, because java works for me and you're attacking it that's why yeah yeah you're you're saying approach. it's yeah you do yeah 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 i think so but um yeah and and i've been i've been you know, struggling with the whole builder thing, going, what is the issue here? And I think the issue is that it's a stateful thing because oh, it has multiple states as you're building the object. And mutation. It, well, yeah, it's basically uh, visible mutation. Is what Brian gets, um, calls it the ordinality 
um, issue or something like that, that when you have a builder and you call something, you don't know, let's say if it's a list uh, that's the backing like data underneath it, you don't know if calling that thing twice is going to add new things onto the list or like you, there, it doesn't at all express like how the mutations are happening. The builder doesn't express the how the mutations are actually happening. Are they being appended? Are they? And, and so this is where I'm like, gosh, like, yes, the mutability is a problem. The lack of compile time validation is a problem. Anyways, that was quite a tangent to my uh, hate of builders. <laughs> it's a hobby horse. It's a hobby horse. <laughs> or a stocking Thankfully, horse. there are no builders in Zio. There's no builders, right? I, just, I don't think there's any. Well, I think Zlayer is probably the closest thing to a builder. I mean, I, hopefully without the bad aspects. Yeah. But... Yeah, it is like build builds the services that your application needs. Yeah, at least it's immutable, and you do get compile time feedback if right. you're missing a layer. And exactly, <laughs> yeah. But yeah. is that a a stepwise process? Well, the construction if you have layers that depend on each other, it mm -hmm. can be a stepwise process, but that you can think of more as function composition mm -hmm. of you have a database service that depends on a logging service and then you have a logging service. So you put those two layers together and the first one generates the logging service and then that gets fed into the database and used by the database. But that's happening, I mean, I guess from the standpoint of the user, is that all sort of an atomic operation? In other words, I say go, I'm not saying, Take this. You're just now creating later, take data this. structures. That's okay. all happening. Yeah, you're describing it. Okay. You're creating a recipe for building your application, and, and then that, it builds it that's more or less built atomically right before your okay. application. So that running. doesn't have the problem that right. we're talking about right. here. Right, right. But it, I think the, the closest, the functional analogy mm -hmm. of the of the builder pattern. Yeah, it's yeah. the Z layer stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, what what are you excited about in Zio? What's coming up that? Is well, I'm excited about getting ZO2 out the door. Yeah. We've, uh, I mean, we've all been working hard, but it's it's been it's been a while now, and I think it'll be really nice when people can really start using it because we've been in this little bit of in between state where people have been excited about it, and there have been for a while now milestones available of ZO2, but not necessarily of all the other libraries you would need, yeah. and. Hopefully, over the next few days, we'll be doing the first release candidate, oh, and along nice. with that doing a big push to get releases of basically all the Zio ecosystem libraries supporting Zio2 so that you can really take your application. And I, mean, I think you're, you're being an early adopter, but everyone can take their applications and yeah. you can take all the dependencies you're working with before and you can just run them on Zio2. Yeah. So I think mm. that's going to be really but, cool. So what's the... What are the changes that somebody will have to do to go from ZO1 to ZO2? That... So basically what you're going to do is you're going to use a Scala fix rule. So oh. Kit uh, did a really good job and a little help from, from Bill yeah. uh, putting together a Scala fix rule where mm. you basically run this on your code base and it should generally compile on ZO2 after you've run that Scala mm. fix rule. Sweet. There's a lot of renaming of like put Sterling becomes print line. And so you have to do that renaming, but Scalafix will just do it for you. Hmm. So, do you cool. have any favorite features in Scala, uh, Scala 3? Um, I'm really excited for union types. Hmm. Uh, when you do a little bit more, I guess, fancy stuff with types, you, you find there's a duality between intersection types and union types that were kind of missing in Scala 2. And so like with the environment type in Zio, the, the intersection of two environment types is exactly what you want and is what's produced by has. And that works very naturally as a type level function of from A to B to A and B yeah. uh, versus you don't have that other part. You don't have the A and the B to the A or B. And so like, if you're talking about error types, you can, you can widen the error type, which is what we do in like a flat map, say on Zio. But there are times when you want to describe more of a type level function mm. that, com that combines two errors. And in Scala 2, there's really not a good way to say, give me the unification of these two things. Give me the um, least upper bound of these two things. 
And so that that definitely comes up a few times as something that uh, we're, we're missing. And so it'll be it'll be fun to get to use that, though. I think sometimes the, the sad part of being a library author is we have to be a little bit slower on some of these things because we can't use a feature that's not going to support on Scala 2 until we're really dropping support for Scala 2, which yeah. we're pretty mm -hmm. far away from at this point. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, yeah I've seen union types in a number, even, even Python's uh, type system has added union types. And I think they were talking about putting it in even Java, maybe? I could be wrong about that, but uh, that would be the future sometime. Yeah, I mean, the sealed traits are kind of yeah, sealed, sealed classes or whatever, mm -hmm. sealed mm -hmm. whatevers. And Java kind of, I guess that gives you an emulation of them. But the nice thing that in Scala 3 and even is already working well with Zio is when you combine two Zios with two different air types, mm -hmm. it it and uh, it ors them yeah. right, into a union. Yeah. Uh, it's amazing. The first time we saw this like happen, we're like, that didn't just happen, did it? But it it was so cool. And then, but the thing that I think you'll be able to take advantage of in the future is how do you then, how do you then handle one air type and so that then your Zio no longer has that. Local elimination, right? Yeah. Which oh. with the environment as well has been... Yeah, yeah, it's something we've been working on for a mm. while. Yeah. Nice. Mm. Yeah, that'll be cool. Well, I, I, the expressiveness is also really nice. When you see it, you go, oh, yeah, it's this thing or that thing. It just says what it is. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Foo or bar. Mm -hmm. Makes cool. sense. And that's equivalent to bar or foo, <laughs> which is cool. <laughs> it's reflexive. Yeah. Nice. Is that the word for it? Com commute commutative? I think it's. No. Well, yeah. Yeah. My, I'm not. I'm my I was only a math major. <laughs> yeah, that's right. You should know. Yeah, we didn't worry so much about that stuff in physics. Yeah. Well, thank you, Adam. Thanks for all your contributions to Zio, and thanks for joining us, taking time away from the hackathon to to do this with us. It's yeah, super thank, fun. Thank you so much for having me. It was a real pleasure.